it's Maria over at the laundromat. There's a yellow dress in with your things. Is that a mistake or special handling or what? Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we explore the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. This time we have a, an away episode where Rockford leaves his home turf for a, for a new adventure. Epi, where does this episode take us and our, uh, and our friend Rockford? Uh, well, it uh, takes us into Rockford's past a little bit, actually. This is um, interesting. He's, he's going to uh, head out to a military base where a, he's been called to by a colonel who used to be a former commanding officer of his. Mm-hmm. And this will be a, a little look at the, I, I, I want to say nefarious. Maybe the, the shady past? Yes, his shady military career. That's what it is. It's a look there at Rockford's shady military career. Yep. Uh, I remember way, way back when we uh, talked about Sleight of Hand, there were a couple little callbacks to his military career there. And since then, I don't think we've really touched on it in any of the episodes that we've talked about. Yeah. This one is Season 2, Episode 10, 2 into 556 Won't Go. That is, the 556 we will learn pretty late in the episode, uh, for those of us who are not military heads, refers to uh, an ammunition size. And I will say that uh, I have not quite figured out what the entire title means. I have a theory about that that maybe we'll we'll talk about at the end. I think I figured it out at the end of this episode. Oh, okay, good. Because I chose this episode based on the title alone. Uh, I am a sucker for... Uh, numbers and interesting word order and that this they were both in the title here but at the end i, I was like I, I mean i knew the 556 by the end and that was it we'll see we'll see if my theory holds any water when we yeah. get there this episode written by Stephen cannell our our good friend and series co-creator and directed by a french director who i'll try not to butcher his name but i believe it's Jeannot swark <laughs> but that's good enough quite a, a filmography this is the first of three episodes of the Rockford Files that he will direct, as well as two of the 90s Rockford Files movies. Oh. He's uh, all over TV, including still uh, directing shows that are currently running, including um, episodes of Bones and Grey's Anatomy, uh, Scandal, and some other pretty high-profile TV uh, TV series. Also the director of Jaws 2. Oh, Interesting. Yeah, and uh, and one episode of my other favorite '70s detective show, Columbo. Uh, he directed "Lovely but Lethal," which is the one with a very young Martin Sheen in like a, a makeup czar's uh, web of of danger and murder. <laughs> so yeah, in retrospect, a little more of a heavy hitter director than some of our other episodes. But I'm not sure if uh, this particular episode um, was particularly memorable for the direction or framing or anything like that. There were a few moments where I wondered what the director wanted. Mm, sure. Uh, there's a c- couple freeze frames. There are also uh, early on some really good moments that well, we could talk about them when we get to them, but yeah, I, I am. I'm with you. So since you picked the, the show on the title, how did you feel about the preview montage? Oh yeah. So uh, I've got some things to say about this preview montage as the show goes on. And actually this is going to get a little bit into the bit in the second part that I want to kind of talk about. Whenever Rockford dresses down authority, I'm mm-hmm. happy. And the preview montage has the uh, the civilians outrank lieutenants and colonels. 
uh, line, which is great. If you're just going into this fresh and you don't know that Rockford himself has been in the military, that gains a little bit more oomph Mm -hmm. when you finally reach the line. There's a great moment between uh, Sheena. So we'll get to know her in a minute, but there's there's a moment that we are starting to recognize in Rockford File episodes where a female lead says something about starting to warm to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's going to rub them the wrong way, and then... One of the many patterns is the contentious yeah. relationship between Rockford and his uh, female client, usually, and then they thaw, yeah, or they, they come to some kind of positive understanding at some point through yeah. the episode. The reason why I think this is worth pointing out in the preview montage is when we get to her actual entrance. It's it's great. I think in terms of the uh, emotional content of the show, it's pretty much all in her. Like she's yeah. the the emotional through line. So we get to see her right off the bat. So we know we definitely know there's uh, there's something going on with the army. This woman will be involved, and uh, we get to see who's clearly a a goon of a cop or sheriff, a county cop of some kind having a confrontation with Rockford. And I also want to point out that this uh, Sheena uh, is played by Jesse Wells, mm-hmm. uh, who is was the voice of Eleanor in Wizards. I was going to ask if you uh, made that connection. You know what? I, I Okay, this is weird and slightly embarrassing, but I spent most of the episode trying to figure out if, as a kid, I had a crush on her. <laughs> like I was, there was something about her that just kept pinging something in the back of my brain. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I looked her up on IMDb, and when I saw that, I was like, I wonder if that's what was happening, if if I was just hearing that voice. Yeah, she's an interesting, kind of an interesting character in this episode. Uh, She's in two other episodes of Rockford Files, one prior to this and one after, I think in kind of similar roles. But not the same character, which is... But not the same character. No, yeah. she's not a recurring character. She's just a recurring, you know, face. So mm. I was like, she's kind of familiar, probably because she's been in multiple Rockford episodes. I still have never seen Wizards, so... Oh, well. That's on me. That is. I assumed you had, though. Mm-hmm. 200 a day is supported by all of our listeners, but especially our gumshoes. For this episode, we have five of them to thank. Thank you, Kevin Lovecraft. You can find him on the Wednesday Evening Podcast All-Stars Actual Play Podcast. Visit misdirectedmark.com to find that feed, along with other gaming podcasts in the Misdirected Mark Productions Network. Thank you, Lowell Francis. Check out his award-nominated blog full of insights and historical analysis of role-playing games at ageofravens.blogspot.com. Thank you to Shane Liebling and Dylan Winslow. And finally, a big thank you to Richard Haddam for his very generous support. Find him on Twitter at Richard Haddam. If you want to get a shout out for your podcast, blog, or anything else you do, check out patreon.com slash 200 a day and see if you want to be our newest gumshoe. We start off the episode with uh, some pretty hot action. Oh, yeah. Car chase right off the bat, but not with Rockford, uh, unfortunately. No. Uh, we see a guy in an army. I'm not a military-minded person, so if I use some wrong words to describe army <laughs> things, please forgive me. I'll forgive you. <laughs> He's in a dressier uniform. I don't think it's a dress uniform, but he's right. has a full hat and, and uh, coat and everything. He's driving this open-top Jeep in hot pursuit. It's a, a sedan of some kind, right on his heels. He manages to smartly evade his pursuers by going off-road in the Jeep, and they get stuck and can't follow him. Uh, he, he loses those in pursuit and finds a payphone, which he uses to call Jim Rockford. Mm-hmm. He leaves a very compelling mystery message. His name, Colonel Daniel Hart Bowie. 
He'll be waiting at a different phone. He wants Rockford to call him there. He's clearly in distress. There's something about this that, well, first of all, uh, when he started running up to the phone booth, every ounce of my soul wanted to hear uh, the Rockford answering machine message, right? Like that was the, <laughs> yeah, this man in such dire straits, barely eluding his, his pursuers, flees into a phone booth to give Rockford a call. And there's two things I want to have happen. One, I want him to be trying to reach Rockford. Hmm. And two, I want Rockford not to be home and he'd have to get the answering machine. I cannot justify that desire, but I was so happy it was fulfilled. Yep. Afterwards, I was struck by the urgency in which he did that and then he's like i'm going to run off and be near another phone right why did he not wait until he got to the other phone to call rockford Mm -hmm. and i don't think the episode actually explains that it's a wonderful conceit but yeah not to be too much of a downer but this this episode i don't think holds together as much as some of our uh, more favorite episodes that we've talked about and that is an early sign i guess of that though it works out in his favor right yeah For whatever reason, he decided to do that. And that's good because on his way from that phone to wherever he's heading, he gets pulled over. And the sheriff that gets out of the car, we recognize from the preview montage as clearly our goon of a sheriff. Also, he has a great goon face. Yes, he's been in a lot of things. So Charles Napier, who uh, plays authority figures all over the board yeah i definitely was like i have seen this guy in other things he's only been in one other rockford files episode but he's been all over the place as this uh good old boy uh crooked authority figure and he just as soon as he steps out of the car you're like oh this is this is a bad guy (laughs) can't wait to see him get his comeuppance Uh, at first the colonel is not aware that he's getting messed with uh but our sheriff here he handcuffs him and calls in that he's got him, and then the car that was pursuing him earlier pulls up uh, yeah. with our, our other goons. He does have a good line in here after the colonel asks him, why are you working with these guys? Because he, he puts it together pretty quick. Yeah. The sheriff responds with, life's a booger, ain't it, colonel? <laughs> he's got this whole spiel about it's the satisfaction of a job well done or something yeah. like that. When these other guys arrive, I do like the universal symbol for a villain. The cigar? The, yeah, the guy... <laughs> Just like sits sits back and lights up a cigar. So there's the the guy in a suit who, uh, due to our Rockford character visual coding, is probably involved with the mob in some way. Yeah, lighting a cigar while another heftier man in uh, army like fatigues but not a uniform slaps our colonel around. Is clearly a, of lower rank and has been looking forward to this for a long time. Slaps him around a little bit and then they uh, hustle him into the car and and head off to mysterious ends. So that intros our episode. Uh, and then from there, we still haven't gotten anyone's name in any of that, uh, except for the Colonel, uh, Colonel mm-hmm. Bowie. But we will see all these guys again pretty soon. From the end of that scene, we cut to a great shot. Jim Rockford <laughs> rinsing off his catch, rinsing off some fish in the sink. Yeah. And jawing with his dad, Rocky, about how he wants the fish prepared. Rocky is is upset about the polluted conditions. He, mm-hmm. You get the impression that Rocky is... He's making excuses for why they had such a poor catch, right? Right. Like they're, 
may or may not be actual pollution going on. It may just be that they just didn't get that big of a fish. Jim likes his fish filleted, while Rocky likes his fried. That's established very clearly in this conversation as well. There's a slightly out-of-character Rocky moment here, too, where Rocky is suggesting something (laughs) quasi-legal. I don't want to read too much into it, but I do think it's... It holds some sort of thematic resonance with the things that'll happen later in the, the episode. But he wants to set up these no dumping signs and, and invent ordinances. Right. Yeah. Cause if the sign's there, people will obey it. Right. Like this feel of authority to, to trick people into not messing up his catch. During this kind of one-sided conversation that Rocky's holding, Rockford asks him to turn on his answering machine and check his messages. He hears the message. He looks concerned uh, and calls back, you know, the number that he was given. Rocky recognizes the colonel as the one that Jim used to know or something. He makes a reference to make it clear yeah. that they that they all know who this guy is. Yeah. He, like, ask him if he's one of his old army buddies, and Rockford responds that they're, they're not exactly buddies. Right. <laughs> uh, there's no answer to his phone call, and then there's a knock on his trailer door, and it's our good friend, Sergeant Becker, coming in with uh, another army guy, Lieutenant Fenton, who wants to talk to Jim, wants to take him to the provost marshal's office because they're investigating a case that he may be involved with. He asks him, we know you were involved with uh, Colonel Bowie, Jim, with his back up immediately, as it is when people just walk in and want him to do things, just plays the message for him. And he's like, that's it. That's all. That's all I know. He's staying put. He's staying right there. And then we smash cut to him in the (laughs) marshal's office, having had his arm twisted in some way, shape or form to get him to to the military authorities to talk to them about Colonel Bowie. These are, you know, some of the the better cuts in the the whole episode. Uh, Mm Mm-hmm. I've got a little more you know moment here. I did not know this offhand. Had to do a little research. There's the line about the provost marshal. Rockford says that he has he's not really into marshals of any kind. Yeah. And he says, I'm not even into Matt Dillon. And I, I was like, I think that Matt Dillon is an actor who's come about sometime after this series. So he can't be talking about the Matt Dillon that I'm thinking of. So I went and looked it up. Uh, Marshall Dillon was the lead character in Gunsmoke. Oh. I thought, oh, okay, that's neat. Uh, I hadn't seen a lot of Gunsmoke, so, you know, it wasn't something that was stuck and fresh in my head. But then I thought, okay, is there something deeper to this? (laughs) And so I found out that there's a uh, Maverick episode starring our friend James Garner called Gun Shy, in which they sent had to do this big send-up of Gunsmoke. So... Uh. Haven't seen any of the episodes. I don't know much more than that. But that was the little rabbit hole that I fell down into. And now I feel richer for knowing it. Well, thank you for that, Epi. Oh, you're quite welcome. In the provost's office, Jim is getting uh, dressed down, as so often happens, for his record. <laughs> oh, yeah. Our, our colonel here, Colonel Hopkins, says, reads like it comes out of Ripley's Believe It or Not. <laughs> so, basically, Rockford yo-yoed between ranks. It seems like he would get promoted, and then he would do something and get demoted back and forth in the Korean War. Some of the highlights from this include that he traded 400 rations for a North Korean tank. <laughs> In addition to setting up a network of pool halls throughout uh, the area while he was still in Korea, among other line items. So Colonel Hopkins is not predisposed to believe him when he says that he knows nothing about this. This is this message right. is the only thing, only contact he's had. Uh, and that puts Rockford's back up again, as you might ima- imagine. But Colonel Hopkins revealing himself to be a reasonable man, I think, uh, yeah. which 
comes back again later, changes tack, and he's like, okay, this isn't getting us anywhere. And he reveals to Rockford and to us that Colonel Bowie is dead. Uh, mm-hmm. He was found dead in a rolled over Jeep and that he had Rockford's phone number in his pocket and he just wants to know why. Mm-hmm. I think it's also made clear here that when Rockford was in Korea, he served under Bowie, yeah. the colonel who is now dead. Some of those misdeeds he claims to be at Bowie's command. And presumably then Bowie then demoted him for doing it. <laughs> There's clearly a adversarial relationship between Rockford and this now deceased colonel who who had contacted him. Yeah, he he's kind of confused about, or not confused, but he doesn't think there's a clear reason why he would have been contacted in the first place, considering that right. they didn't exactly have a great relationship. And we just kind of leave that question hanging. Rockford doesn't know why he the colonel yeah. called him. Colonel Hopkins doesn't have anything to... to keep him there for. And this is where we see the line from the preview montage about uh, civilians outranking colonels. Yes. While it's still a army matter, they don't really have any way to compel Rockford to do anything unless yeah. it becomes a criminal case. And now we get this line and we, if we haven't been watching Rockford before, we are now well aware of the fact that Rockford has this shady past with the military. So mm-hmm. his reaction to military authority is not at all surprising. I think at this point, Hopkins knows much more of what's happening mm-hmm. than uh, Rockford. And so, so there's some things we know as audience that Rockford doesn't know yet. And there's some things that Hopkins knows that neither we nor Rockford know. What's interesting now looking back on it is you can see why Hopkins is sort of handling Rockford the way he's handling him. Yeah. And why Hopkins would definitely think Rockford would be involved. What eventually falls out seems right just another step in the progression that would be Rockford's file. It makes sense. Definitely. But the way that this episode is structured, we don't really see that until the end. Yeah. We'll go over it again when we get there. Back to Jim's trailer, uh, Rockford is worried about this, kind of stressed out. He he might be accidentally... Frying his fish when uh, Rocky thought he was going to be filleting it. <laughs> but then we get another knock on the door. A woman comes in, the woman from our preview montage. Yes. And she immediately <laughs> draws a giant gun and just starts demanding to know what he told you. So this is, I mean, this is what I love about the preview montage. Knowing that this is a series and that this character will go on, this character being Rockford, we know that nothing really bad's going to actually happen here to him. So that's not really what's at question here. What's at question is how we get from walking into his trailer with a gun pulled to I'm warming to you. Yeah. We know that arc has to happen, and now we're excited to see how that arc is going to happen. Yeah, in in this moment, we pretty quickly get to... um seeing that she's not super serious with this gun as it's not even loaded. Rockford manages to talk her down a little bit by uh, deducing that this is Shayna Bowie, uh, Colonel Bowie's daughter, because she'd be about the right age. And also she's holding a gun that he recognizes as being the Colonel's uh, uh, chrome-plated revolver. So once he kind of talks her down, she is upset, a little uh, weepy. She thinks that it wasn't an accident. They're saying it was a Jeep accident. She doesn't think it was an accident. She thinks he was killed. And this is a theme that comes back again and again. He was such a straightforward, solid, straight shooter kind of guy. When she saw him a week ago and he was visibly upset, he was drinking hard liquor. He was. He yeah. said he had a problem, but he wouldn't tell her what it was. And that's when she started worrying. And now he's dead. So she thinks those two things are connected. The only kind of clue 
uh, for lack of a better word, that comes out of this conversation is that he mentioned someone named Terry in this uh, shaken up state that he was in when they had dinner. Right. Through all this, Rockford, I think, is sympathetic, but also doesn't want to get drawn in. We get a, a classic Rockford two-step where he starts off with a very strong, I'm sorry that this happened and that you're upset, but it's an open case. The MPs are investigating it, so I can't get involved. And Rocky backs him up with, you don't want to get involved with the army. This bit is also in the preview montage. This great line about how if you mess with the army, they'll give you a shovel and point you at hard ground. Mm -hmm. Jim is like, don't worry, Rocky. There's no way. I'm not going anywhere near this. Yeah. And then he says that he's just not available. Yeah. No, no, no. Here are all the reasons why this is not going to happen. If if we can point to anything as great directorial in this this episode, it's this scene here. You have her sitting in front of the desk. He's behind his desk and Rocky's in his kitchen. So that you just shift over to Rockford and Rocky talking about how it's not going to happen. He's just not going to do it. And then he shifts back and it's as if she wasn't listening to the conversation. Like he's treating her like I'm not available. That's it. As if for some reason he had stepped out of the room right. and stepped back. But he didn't. She's sitting right there. He's telling her like, I'm sorry, I can't get involved. And then he's turning around while they're still both in the room and saying, Rocky, I absolutely am not getting involved. What are you yeah. crazy? And the camera is making it, making yeah. that division make sense. Yeah. And then this wonderful pause. You watch him realize that he's not going to be able to say no. no nothing spoken is just uncomfortableness. Somebody should leave now, but nobody's going to. Mm-hmm. And then we get the cut. To Shana and Rockford sitting next to each other <laughs> in a mess hall or a dining hall talking about expenses. That may be my favorite scene of this whole episode. Mm-hmm. Just that whole... It was good. It reminded me of... There were a similar couple cuts in um, A Portrait of Elizabeth. Yeah. To achieve the same effect where Rockford's saying, no, absolutely no way, and then cut, <laughs> and he's doing the thing he was just said, no way. Yeah. We got that with going into Carl Hawkins' uh, office, and now we're getting it going to uh, working for Shana. Sorry, Jim. We knew you were going to give in in the end. Yeah. Doesn't really matter how you got there, but now you're in it. They're in this dining hall or a cafeteria somewhere. Shana uh, is talking about expenses. This is the first of a number of conversations they have where she wants him to help, but she doesn't really want him to do what he does because she feels like he's too aggressive or he's going to take advantage of her in some way or that he doesn't respect her or he doesn't respect her father. And this is something that gets returned to a lot uh, and I think maybe leaned on a little much in this whole over the arc of the episode. Yeah. We'll see what you think about it. But this is the first place we see it. She can't really afford him anyway, so she wants to make sure that he's not putting her over a barrel for expenses, and he's offended by that, because he's he would never do that in the first place, so he just gets really sarcastic. It's a, a great shout-out to bookkeeping here. She wants to hold the expense receipts uh, so that she knows, and he goes, well, if we're doing double-entry books, then... Make sure you get the coffee because that was 10 cents. I enjoyed that. He uh, The upshot is that he takes the case, we can assume, because she talks about not being able to afford him, but she's hiring him anyway. She asks him, why did you take the case? And he's, I'm not sure. A little bit of a fourth wall breaking uh, reference to what yeah. we were just talking about. Just we go from here and there. And he's in it. I mean, there's also a real in-character reason to have that response. But Mm -hmm. I felt like it was a nice little wink at the audience. Like, this is what he does. 
I also noted that they're sniping, but it's a little flirtatious. Yeah. And we see that come up as we go also. But yeah, so now that he's on the case, uh, they go to Colonel Bowie's quarters on, on this base somewhere on the coast, somewhere outside of Los Angeles. Shayna goes down memory lane, uh, kind of with the artifacts that are there and his medals that are framed on the wall and st- or his, uh, whatever it's called, but all the campaign ribbons and stuff. Rockford's main intent is to figure out who Terry was, as that's the only real lead that he has. Yeah. So he wants to start looking, find his address book, etc. But as they start looking around, she points out that things aren't where they should be. Like there's a picture that he always has on his desk through every time they've moved, it's been in the same place on his desk, but now it's on a different table. Table. His uh, dress pants and dress shirt are on the same hanger, which I guess a military man would never do. It's his uh, fatigue pants with his dress shirt. Oh, so right. it's, it's a mix and match. I thought that was a, a great little little life hack. <laughs> Don't hang your fatigue pants with your dress shirt unless you're in trouble. It's a nice little SOS to any private investigators that come by. They theorize that someone's already tossed the place looking for something and yep. then put it back, but they just didn't get the details right. Which, as far as it goes, is fine. I don't think that goes anywhere, though, right? We never... Okay, so this plays a little bit into the flirtation stuff that you were talking about, too, because I think that there's an underdeveloped attempt to kind of bring Rockford and Shayna together. Mm -hmm. If this place is tossed... Well, okay, I guess there's a couple things happening here. I think one is that it definitely makes Rockford suspicious, but we don't need to do that. Rockford is suspicious. That's how he is. I mean, it it leads directly to how he acts in the next scene, which we'll get to in a second. It makes it uncomfortable for her to stay there though and i think that that might be what they're trying to do that might be more of the intent of that yeah because plot wise it never really comes up again the colonel had something that these goons wanted or something as we said this episode has more more than usual of those rough edges uh i think so this is one of them anyway uh before they can really get into searching anything uh there's a knock at the door and our our next uh ne'er-do-well appears (laughs) He's introduced as Harvey. We recognize him as the bad guy army guy who was roughing up the colonel earlier. I think in a good use of audience character difference of knowledge. Yeah. A lot of the tension of this episode comes from us knowing who the bad guys are before Rockford does. So we see him and we're like, oh, here's the bad guy. But Shana knows him. They're friends. He's coming to, to give his condolences, uh, of course. Then when Shayna tries to introduce Jim, he runs her over with a with an alias and a story <laughs> to keep her from revealing to the sergeant who he really is. So we know that he is suspicious. It's a great bit of um, sloppy con work, right? Like, mm-hmm. she's like, this is Mr. Rock Sanford. Rock Sanderson. A little bit of a hangover from my, uh, from my, my fighting days or something yeah. <laughs> like that. And she says, like, oh, we can trust him. He's a friend. And we were just here, too. And he's like, to tell you that we're engaged. <laughs> Goes way off. Though in so doing, I think shocks Shayna into going along with what he's saying. Yeah. She she's in a spot now where she just can't figure out what's happening and just runs with it. The sergeant seems a little weirded out, but kind of is like, all right, well, that's great and all, but you still can't stay on the base because you're not right. an army person. So he leaves and then Shayna immediately turns and is angry <sighs> that Rockford both steamrolled her, I think. Yeah. And also told lies to someone that she considers a friend. And I think very poignantly, like it's the army man aspect of it. Yeah. That- she has this great respect for the military 
partly because of her dad and how decorated he was. So she says that it's because he's been with her dad for so long. And we know as audience members that this is uh, not a good thing for her dad. But <laughs> Rockford's reply to that is great. Every podcast episode, we tell you, go watch the episode. <laughs> and this is one of the moments I think it's worth watching the episode for. He doesn't know Harvey. He's not not been in the military with Harvey. so And he's been in the military with her dad. So Harvey managed to skip out on the Korean War. Mm -hmm. And Rockford says a thing like, no matter how much I tried, I couldn't do that. It was one of my classic failures, mm -hmm. which is a great line and fits this Rockford noble cowardice. There's yeah. something about Rockford. It's kind of a, a, a principled cowardice. Almost. Yeah. You know, he's got this thing where he's like, you know, he assessed the situation and says, this is not a place where I need to risk my life. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to do it just because somebody told me to. And he comes out with that in response to Shayna accusing him of spending the whole war trying to get out of it. Yeah. And contrasting that with her father, who was this model soldier, you know, who who did all these great things, fought all these great campaigns, and he was such a such a symbol of, you know, all the great things about the military. And then yeah. Rockford is the opposite of all of those things. For me, this is the heart of their dynamic. He says that mourning your father is fine. Yeah. Mourn the man. That makes sense. I get it. But don't be impressed by a military record because you don't know what he did, basically. Like, right. you don't know what people do to get those accolades. Yeah, he, he has that line about he has a, he had a gun with notches in the handles. This, this man has killed people. And so Rockford always, this is part of his principledness, I think, is that he judges people on actions, not on titles. We've yeah. talked about this before and how that's a lot of the class dynamic in the show. Mm -hmm. He's butting up against Shayna grieving and having this this relationship with her father where he was kind of this paragon of this yeah. great military man. So she kicks him out. If you're going to be that way, <laughs> I don't want you to be involved. She kind of fires him. Before we get to that, though, I just, there's, he has this line here. Uh, we're just stepping on each other's ghosts. Yeah. It's a great line. There's a callback to it later. But the part of it that I think that it's great, I'm thinking about this in the context of when this episode is supposed to take place and when it's supposed to, you know, when it aired. So this, this aired in 75, in November right. of 75. So we've got, we're still fresh in the Vietnam War and, and whatnot, and just a national dialogue of both an unwanted war and also how we treat the soldiers from that war. Mm -hmm. In that line, what's great about that line is that it's real easy and right on the top level to read that line as, I don't want to ruin your memory of your father. I don't want to step on your ghosts. I don't want to ruin. But on the other part of that, he says, we're just stepping on each other's ghosts. Mm -hmm. And she's airbrushing his history. Yeah. He's got a lot of baggage tied up in all this as well. So it's not that he's just exasperated with her, I think. I think that mm. there's more to it. That line is strong because it, I mean, it's a little, it's a little cliche, ghosts of the past, right? Right. But the way that it's phrased in the context of the conversation, it's kind of saying we both have an emotional attachment to this man that maybe we didn't realize was going to be a problem. Yeah. I didn't really think about your emotions about this and you haven't really thought about mine. But it's this is still not not enough to calm her down. And no, she, no, it's not very pointed. But she's basically like, "You get out of here. I don't want you in this house. Yeah, I don't need your help." And he's like, "Well, I'll go to the motel if you need me." Yeah. So he's not backing out entirely, but he is respecting her. Like, give me some space, kind of movement. 
That's a good scene. I do feel like we kind of hit it right the first time, and then we kind of get the same conversation a couple more times over yeah. the course of the episode. So we might gloss over those because yeah. the content doesn't really change, even though they kind of have this conversation <laughs> a couple more times. But yeah, Rockford moves moves on to uh, to his hotel, the Seaside Motel. He comes into his room, and straight away, he is surprised by our our crooked cop (laughs) billy webster waiting for him with his gun out and he in short order cuffs rockford and takes him away to mysterious ends rockford demands to be read his rights wants to know why he's being arrested and it becomes very clear that officer webster here uh, has no intention of acting like an actual police officer should yes rockford out out to some vaguely rural location we hear the sea like we know it's on the shore somewhere and we kind of hear the sea throughout the background of the scene which is nice we actually don't get that a lot in uh, Rockford Files. It's night. He sits Rockford down, still handcuffed on this like little wall. And then there's this very weirdly complicated dance yeah. between all the principals in this scene. Rockford's sitting on the wall. Billy Webster's kind of slapping him around and giving him a hard time. And he turns on this radio. There's another radio in another car, a black limousine that's out of the circle of light that Rockford can see. Mm-hmm. So they're listening in to what Billy's saying in this car are our cigar smoking man uh mr davies as we learn and the sergeant sergeant slate harvey slate is his full name this is like a walkie-talkie that's only going one way the people in the car can hear the conversation but but they can't hear what the people in the car are saying oh wait before we do that we should talk about what's in the wallet billy kind of slaps rockford around takes his wallet you know he's like what what are you doing up here rockford's story of course is that he he was a friend of the colonel's and he's up here for the funeral which makes total sense billy pulls his wallet out out to look at it and sure enough he has an, I- an id that says sanderson on it <laughs> i love this deep undercover that rockford can accomplish and later on we learn it's only you know so deep but he, he he'll make the i mean we've talked in earlier episodes about how he makes his little fake business cards and things like that that one of the things i love about it is that in that setting at that time that's a possibility mm-hmm. like nowadays you would need to have some hacker genius that's helping him out or something like that i particularly like this moment because it's a it's a great show don't tell moment showing us that jim is good at this yeah. For whatever reason, he either already decided that this was his alias and that's what he used with Harvey, or because he used it with Harvey, he made sure he had a matching ID for later. Yeah. It works both ways, and either way it shows foresight on Rockford's part where he just knows how to give himself cover when he needs to. So yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, he sticks to his story that he's just there for the funeral. When Billy starts getting a little too violent, Davies in the car starts honking to call yeah. him back over there. Just kind of a failure of this uh, radio system, I guess. <laughs> yeah. If it's set to one way, he can't just call him. Billy goes over um, to, to talk to the guys in the car. They know that there's a PI involved because someone was like spying on Shayna or something like yeah. that, but they don't know who it is. They're worried about CID, which is, I guess, like the military, like internal affairs. Yeah. Some kind of investigation. And they're pretty sure this guy isn't CID, but they don't know if he's the PI or not. Mr. Davies just doesn't want him around, but he doesn't want him like killed or roughed up. He just wants him run out of town. In this conversation, we get that they have a shipment of 556 going out. 
which mm-hmm. is the important thing. They don't want anything to interrupt that. And we also see that these guys don't really hold Billy Webster in very high regard. He's kind of a bully and he's kind of dumb. And yeah. they just want to point him at things and they don't want any any lip, lip from him. Of course, our good friend Jim Rockford, being a smart guy, manages to reach out with his foot and flip the radio uh, <laughs> switch so that he can hear their radio instead of the other way around. So he gets to overhear pretty much this whole conversation. The, the meat and plot movement of the, of the scene uh, kind of all occurs in that car. And then we end up with Jim provoking Billy Webster into a fist fight. I, 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 okay. <laughs> I love this moment for a number of reasons. First of all, it's got a lovely tension going into it where it's clear that Jim can't switch the radio back without making it obvious that he overheard what happened. So despite how perhaps a little dumb Billy Webster is, like, it, it's just not a thing he can do. So as Billy Webster is approaching the radio, that's when Jim just starts talking up looking for a fist fight with some amazing lines he just starts insulting the guy yeah you heard me rum dumb calls him a tub of lard yeah a sack of guts Billy Webster comes back with I'm gonna beat you down so low you'll have to reach up to tie your shoes yeah just (laughs) oh it's great lots of Rockford style threats Oh, it's great. Then this setup, as sort of weird as it is, it creates this, I think, this lovely tension moment. When Billy then undoes Rockford's hands and Rockford is like uh, rubbing his wrists, as you do. Whenever you get your handcuffs off, you immediately rub your wrists. Billy sucker punches uh, Rockford in the kidney or uh, something like that. And uh, there's a fight that breaks out. And then Billy pulls a gun on Rockford. Rockford has to die behind this rock wall. And at that point, the other car is in such a panic about what Billy's doing yeah. that they just keep flashing their lights and honking their horn throughout the whole thing. Like, stop, stop. I love that. Yeah, unlike some other episodes, our bad guys here, our villains, are not criminal masterminds. No, they're not. You get the feeling from this scene pretty much that this is a very seat-of-the-pants operation. Yeah. They don't want any more murders bringing out any more heat, basically. So they honk and, and yell at Billy to get him to lay off. He leaves with a final threat, and then they, <laughs> they drive off in their respective vehicles. And we end the scene with Rockford finding the cigar stub of... Dun-dun-dun... <laughs> Mr. Davis that he'd thrown out the window. So now he has a cigar stub clue to go on. Yeah, that was a weird one because it's not really a clue. It's not. I mean, it's. <laughs> I'll talk about this when we get to the, to the callback for it. Because sure. it's nice that it's there, but it's also completely unnecessary. Yeah. Rockford, I guess, walks back to the motel, it seems. <laughs> yeah. He just walks back up to where he was staying. He takes his gun out of his trunk because yeah. he thought ahead enough to put his, his gun that usually lives in the cookie jar in his trunk, uh, heads back into his room on high alert. There's no one in there, but he is surprised by Shayna running up to yeah. uh, meet him because she was waiting. She was in the coffee shop waiting for him. And now we get the reprise of the earlier conversation. Yeah. She's confused. She wants to talk about her dad, but she's mad at Rockford for his, she says, like, what are you trying to prove with your amateur psychology? Because he's pointing out that sounds like her issues are with her dad, not with him. Yeah. This is all just pure character 
stuff. Yeah. She has been thinking about what, what he said. She has some things to get off her chest, so she's just going to say them. He was never really there for them, and she has a quote that kind of sums it up. All my life I've been trying to get passing marks from someone who didn't care. There's a great little bit about um, Rockford's gun. She sees Rockford's gun and was like, are you allowed to carry that? And he goes, I've never seen that before. And the maid must have left that there. So this scene is a little weird in how they half flirt throughout it, I think. They half flirt, and then when she's laying out the stuff about, like, my dad never loved us, he's just in the background kind of smiling and listening to her. Yeah. I think we're supposed to get that he's being a good listener, like a compassionate friend, but it's a little weird. There's a little bit about where she's going to spend the night, and she's thinking about getting a room in the, the hotel, which I was like, is this supposed to be an opening? And nothing comes of any of this. It's an interesting character scene between the two, but it's also a little weird. It does, I think, have uh, the callback to the ghost line earlier, where she says, what good is it to step on your ghosts if you don't kill them? And Rockford now comes to her dad's defense a little bit. With He played by the rules. That was his life. He, he was an army guy. He played by the rules. That doesn't mean he didn't love you, I guess, right. is kind of the implication. All of this is also with that weird half-flirtatious thing. And the scene ends with our line from the preview montage of, you know, for somebody I can't stand, I'm becoming awfully fond of you. Yeah. And then we cut to them eating dinner in the, the hotel restaurant. <laughs> kind of a weird scene, right? I felt it was weird because as I was watching it, I kept thinking I knew where it was going. It wasn't like it was surprising me with the directions it was going. It was just never quite reached anything, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. It felt to me like the kind of conversation in a role-playing game Mm -hmm. where you have two characters in a scene and they're talking, but neither of them really knows what they want out of the scene. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So again, that stands out as kind of a weird place for for Rockford dialogue to be, because usually the dialogue has a somewhere to go, and in this one it didn't really seem yeah. to go anywhere. But moving on to the restaurant, they have dinner on their plates, but we do not see them actually eating any of it, <laughs> uh, and it's hard to see what's on Rockford's plate. It's behind the glass, so food watch, uh, still inconclusive for this episode. He made a phone call to ask about Billy Webster with the actual local... Right. Sheriff? Shockingly, turns out that Billy Webster is not a real cop and is impersonating a cop. And so he reported the, the assault and battery to the actual authorities. But he was clued into this by the fact that Billy did not run his plates when he took him in the car. And that's yeah. like a thing that all cops do. His, his cover isn't so deep that if Billy had just done what a cop does. He would have known that it was Jim Rockford, not uh, James Sanderson or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Again, nice detail, but also a little unnecessary. <laughs> like, as opposed to just calling because one of your cops beat me up. I think it uh, it gives them a moment to unclutter the end of the story. That's so true. You don't have to include the local cops as well. Yeah. It also, the sort of thematic callback to Rockford, or not Rockford, Rocky earlier, wanting to invent all these ordinances. I, I just saw like a little connection there. I don't think there's anything like big or momentous to read into that, but uh, I thought it was kind of neat that here's a fake cop enforcing, you know what I mean? What Rocky wanted to do at the very beginning was come up with fake ordinances to right. protect what, what he had going. They kind of go over what they have so far, which isn't much. Uh, Rockford asks if she knows what 556 is, and she does not. But she thinks if it has anything to do with the military, then they should go back to her dad's quarters and look around a little more. 
from here, we go to kind of the next act. Yeah. There's kind of a weird passage of time here. We go to the next day. Rockford is talking through a screen door to a great, <laughs> oh, memorably scruffy, one of our great side characters. This guy, I don't think he even gets three words in before I'm like, oh, this is one of these guys. This is this is yeah. this is a character I'm gonna love. Uh, so I remember having no idea why Rockford was talking to this guy the first time I watched this episode. Yeah. Why is he here? Over the course of this scene and then a later scene, I think we pieced together that Rockford was following up this limo, like he managed to get the. Yeah. License plate or something of the limo that he saw the night before. And that's what led him to this guy. But that wasn't really telegraphed to me. You had to, to really pay attention to get that connective tissue. I, I agree. I, I was in the exact same boat. I, I was loving the scene. And it was a little... I know that this guy is going to reveal a bunch of stuff. Um, and just his patter was just amazing. Yeah. He's so mad about his, his niece. <laughs> Rockford is, is following up on this name Terry and the fact that he saw this black limo or got the license yeah. plate number or something like that. Also, not really noted in this scene, but backfilled later, is that this is a, a mortuary on or near the army base. So he poses to be a, a, a insurance guy following up on a hit and run. He has a client whose car was hit by a black limo, and he wants to know who may have been driving this limo. And it was not this guy, but it might have been one of the girls, maybe Alice or her friend Terry, yeah. driving the cemetery limo. They're not supposed to, but they might have taken it. Terry's been going around and, and getting drunk with that Sergeant Slate, so if she's <laughs> liable to do anything. He just has this whole list of complaints about his, uh, his, his niece and her friend. Yeah. No, he just says, them girls is wild. Wild. It's wild and no good. Rockford walks away from that door, literally saying, bingo. That moment is another great wink at the audience here. Whether or not it was, I don't know, but I'm taking it as such. Uh, because this guy pretty much hands the case to Rockford on a silver platter. Yeah. You mentioned before about that previous scene with Rockford and Shayna being like two characters in a role-playing game who don't know what they want out of a scene. Uh, this one is that scene in the role-playing game where <laughs> the GM's like, I just need to barf this into you. Yeah. I'm going to baby bird all this information. <laughs> and here's what you need to know to get on with the story. Yeah. But yeah. it's such a it's such a great character to do it through that, like, I'm like, yeah, I'll take it. Super fun scene to watch. Just kind of, we're not quite sure why we're here and we're not quite sure why this is the critical information, but whatever. We'll just go with it. Yeah. Rockford calls. He wants to get on the base uh, or is pretending to want to get on the base. Uh, and the gate guards say that he can't see Shayna because she left. She left the base with Sergeant Slate. Yeah. Now we've put the pieces together with Sergeant Slate's the bad guy that we saw in the beginning. He's been going around with this girl, Terry, who apparently was the limousine hookup. And now he's gone with uh, Shayna. So that's bad mojo. They do give him a piece of helpful information, which is that they checked out car 2424 out of the motor pool. So Rockford is trying to track down Terry. So he goes to the actual mortuary. Yeah, the funeral home. Yeah. Yeah, we see him in his car using his uh, business card printer, which we haven't seen since the very first episode that we recorded, Tall Woman in Red Wagon. Yeah, I feel like something is, is occurring to me just now. Because in that one, it was also about a casket, right? It was, yeah. I wonder if he's using the same character. I can't remember. I don't remember the name. Oh, it is a different company. Yeah. Because this one, his his little cover story is that he works for Mahogany Hall. You know what we call it? The Oakland Library of Slumber Chambers. 
But anyway, uh, we get there in a second. As he's going into the mortuary, he passes an open garage in a very fortunate turn of events and sees a car with a sheet over it, but it's rooked up over the license plate, which is 2424. Yeah. So he goes in to check it out. Not only is that the car, also on a little workbench is one of the radios that matches the radios that he's been seeing these people using and a half-burned cigar (laughs) that's the matching cigar band of the one that he found. Three indications that this is where the bad guys are. Yeah. Do you need all three? (laughs) Yeah, any any one of those would have worked. And and at the very least, two of them, yeah. Yeah, so this is kind of getting back to, like, the cigar band was, like, a nice clue, but ultimately, if it wasn't here, it wouldn't change the story at all. Yeah. But yeah, so he goes into uh, the the mortuary, uh, has this cover story of... slinging uh, Oakline's Library of Slumber Chambers, asks for, uh, I think, Mr. Quentin, who I think is the old guy that he talked to earlier, Yeah, uh, knowing he wasn't there. The woman who is there is like, oh, he's not here. Turns out that this is, in fact, Terry. As soon as he knows that it's Terry, he drops the act and just goes straight into, uh, I know you were having an affair with Colonel Bowie. He told you he was worried about something, and you told the people who killed him. Full on, here's what you've done. Okay, let me talk to you about this one. Uh, her reaction is clear that, that he nailed it, mm-hmm. and she's ready to run, and he stops her. My reaction is very similar to hers. Well, I mean, obviously, I'm not I'm not Rockford. I'm not going to piece it together like he does. But there's certain key elements to his story that I don't recall being telegraphed at all. Like the, yeah. the, the affair. Yeah. So they piece it together afterwards. But that moment, either he's got a working theory and he's just taking a stab at it and he hits. Or... Which I think he kind of is. Yeah. she kind of confirms a lot of stuff for him. Or there was, there was other footage there that they mm. cut out so that we could have cigar moments you know like i can see the logic of now that he's seen who terry is because terry could have been a man right like yeah. all we knew was the name but now that he knows it's like this woman and he sees her and she's attractive maybe he's like so what's the most likely right. situation and he just happened to be right but yeah it is a little it does feel a little like oh so that's where you're going with this yeah <laughs> all right but yeah she uh she spills the beans slate and and davis are smuggling stuff off the base in her Purses, which is why mm-hmm. she's involved. A um, couple months ago, they wanted, and I guess she was, you know, dating Slate or whatever. A couple months ago, they pointed her at the colonel to seduce him, essentially, so that she would be in a position to distract him with weekend trips whenever they needed to get these hearses with smuggling stuff off the base. Because he's the one who's in charge of things such that he would know that that was improper. So they would stage funerals to... Yeah get these hearses on and off of the base and that's how they're smuggling uh smuggling stuff she she insists that she she didn't know that they were going to kill him and that seems right. fair enough i think she says that he's she gets him out of town because he's the kind of guy who would double check that kind of thing again very by the book kind yeah. of guy so now that he kind of knows the parameters of what what's happened uh rockford goes back to colonel hopkins our, our provost marshal hopkins is still kind of mad that rockford's in his business but he tells him the scheme he's like here's yeah. what happened and then hopkins has a revelation it all fits yeah these things that i know that you don't know are fitting in with the stuff that you've just told me it's even smarter than that it's not only that it's it's even better yeah L- almost genuine admiration for the scheme this is where Rockford finally gets the answer to what does 556 mean? Uh, it is a measurement of ammunition for the, the new M16s or something like that. Hopkins makes some phone calls, finds out that there is indeed a hearse on the base. 
calls for a helicopter. They're going to go out and, and catch these guys red-handed. <laughs> Rockford wants to go with. Hopkins is, is resistant, but Rockford, I think they have Shayna as a hostage, so I want right. to be involved to make sure she's safe. And also, he apparently owes the colonel one. And or There's initially Rockford threatens him, physically threatens him. Mm-hmm. He says, I'll bloody you or something like that. And he says, also, they have Shane as a hostage. And then, yeah, there's that the indication that there's something in Rockford's file where... We get the story later, but this is where Hopkins knows and Rockford knows that there's yeah. some kind of interaction that that Rockford had with the colonel back in the day that makes Rockford feel positively inclined towards yeah. wanting to be involved. So we, we get our dramatic scene in the helicopter where they're flying <laughs> around to track down the hearse. Which gives them a nice little stage to give us the rest of the uh, exposition about what's going on. I would have loved to have been there for that meeting when they decided. And then we'll put them in a helicopter. And they'll just talk for a while. Yeah. I mean, it's great. It's fun. There's beautiful vistas and whatnot. Well, mm-hmm. there's vistas. Well, we do get some dramatic shots of horses galloping across yeah. uh, the California wilderness. They're in the helicopter to follow this car that may contain people who would be wary about a helicopter following them. Right. But then we do we get this sort of tidy up of, of, of what the plot was. So Yeah, so uh, Hopkins was there from Washington looking into weapons disappearances on this base. Yeah. He... He told everyone that they thought it was an accident so that the people that he did think murdered the colonel wouldn't spook. What they discovered was that in order to have regular funerals, they were creating fictitious soldiers in the computer and then killing them off whenever they needed to have a funeral. So he was pursuing the weapons disappearances. Yeah. Or what's with all these funerals? Yeah. And then Rockford came in with this is the actual method that they're doing. And that, those were the pieces of the puzzle. However, in a synergistic moment, uh, Hopkins had just cracked the computer that morning to figure out the thing about the fake soldiers. So all the dominoes came falling down on the same day. So you think this uh, this computer part was done by our cigar smoking villain? They have a line earlier either the first time we see them or when they're talking while Rockford's handcuffed about I'm in the computer or you're in the computer, right? Like something like that. Yeah. Our cigar smoking man was on that end, I believe. So there's like one line earlier in the show that sets up the computer thing. I'm just thinking about the structure of the villains here is that they're probably closer to like a three-way partnership than Mm -hmm. they are like one person in charge of anything. Even though one guy smokes a cigar, he might not actually be... The leader of the gang. Exactly. They find the car. They're going to go go into the final showdown. We get a nice little bit about Rockford's reluctance with guns. He says... Uh, I always try to avoid gunplay. It's kind of a religion. I love it. But he does accept a, a forty-five from one of the MPs. And then we have a fairly exciting showdown in a barn. <laughs> our, our bad guys have pulled the hearse up and they're going to, I guess, unload the cargo or whatever. Whatever they do to actually distribute these uh, ill-gotten ammunition boxes. Uh, the helicopter lands. There's additional uh, military police who kind of storm the compound. Everyone kind of backs down once they realize that they're outgunned, except for uh, our good friend Billy, who, being dumb, is also very aggressive. He runs out into the middle of the yard and struggles with a rifle. He, like, can't figure out how to cock it. Rockford, who's hiding behind a tree or something, is just like, don't do that. Just, like, scolds him. (laughs) The exchange is, don't do that. What? Don't do that. (laughs) 
The what is the best part yeah, in it's there. It's like, you're embarrassing everyone right now. <laughs> he tells him not to do it. He's still fussing with the gun. He's like, what? What, Don't, what are you talking about? You know, yeah. like just having a normal conversation with the man he's about to shoot at. Uh, he does drop uh. it. He goes for his sidearm and, and Rockford uh, is quicker on the draw and yeah. shoots him in the shoulder. Uh, a classic Rockford disabling them with a, a non-fatal shot. Um, and then he shoots out one of the tires of Slate's car where he's driving away with Shayna, presumably to try and escape. And uh, they're all apprehended. Mm-hmm. Happy ending for our for our heroes. <laughs> There's a little line uh, that the, uh, the Colonel Hopkins is like, oh, I saw that John Wayne stuff. Yeah. You know, you're a good shot or something like that. Shayna looks at Rockford, and then there's a weird, awkward, long freeze frame. Yeah. And then, I, I don't know what's what, but it seemed like the film quality completely changed for the next scene. Yeah. I, I noticed that, too, and I wondered, did they decide they needed... Like, was that supposed to be the end? Right. And they decided they needed another end, and they filmed it, but, like, with a handheld camera because they were... Their shooting schedule, like, they couldn't get the, the real camera or something? Because it seems like a... Like a home movie quality film yeah. grain in the last scene. That ending, that freeze frame is a, I mean, we've seen those freeze frames a few times in Rockford episodes, mm-hmm. but it also felt like an ending freeze frame where they just missed their button. The, yeah. the line they ended on was okay. It wouldn't be like a really great ending. I'm probably reading way too much into what's just artifact of like how it got stored or something like yeah, that. Yeah, or how it got edited, maybe. Yeah. We don't have any more cigar helicopter footage, so... So we do have a last scene. Uh, it's at the funeral or after the funeral. Yeah. Or outside the church or whatever. Uh, we have Colonel Hopkins, Jim, and Shayna coming out and kind of making their goodbyes. Hopkins says to ask ask about Poussin, uh if she wants to know what why Rockford was so willing to help. He frames oh, yeah. it as as a you don't want to hear this. This is a there I was story. Which, yeah, that's a good a good way to describe that genre. There I was. But he tells a story. He was wounded while out on patrol, surprised and wounded and separated from the rest of the, the uh, unit. He had this leg wound, so he couldn't move around. And that her father, who was in charge, who was the commanding officer, came back for him when he doesn't think a lot of people would. And he never really quite understood why. And he's asked himself that a lot over the years. They clearly had an antagonistic relationship, but still. But still, he was loyal enough to his men to you yeah. know, not let him just die out there in, in Korea. Yeah, he never quite understood why. And that's the end of the episode. Yep. It's interesting. I love that the episode ends with unresolved bits about this. Everybody's feelings about Colonel Bowie and mm-hmm. the military in general and this, this history that Bowie shared with Rockford. Like, they don't... I mean, they do end on this, like, he he was a nice guy, but we don't justify all of this stuff. It's still... Yeah, it's there's no, like, wrapping it up in a bow. Yeah. The, the emotional reality is very striking, where it's like, yeah. he had a complicated relationship with this man that he thought was probably never going to affect him again, but then they came back into his life, and he had to confront all this stuff all over again through the lens of Shayna, who has her own complicated relationship with her father. There's no reason that should just be like, and now... I've come to terms with how I felt about my old commanding officer. Like, there's no reason why that should end up in a, in a neat place. Yeah, this is a reoccurring uh, event in our our adventures as podcasters mm-hmm. here. But having the, the opportunity to watch episodes over again 
and then dig into them and talk them through again, <laughs> you know, I get to like see more about what's happening in the episode. And one of the things that the whole arc, the emotional arc of Rockford versus the military versus Colonel Bowie is that beginning, all the beginning bits with his answering machine message, right? Because he mm -hmm. just plays it for people. Like the yeah. moment they show up, he's just like, that's what it is. I don't, I don't care. We hear it four times maybe, like, because he just keeps playing it for everyone who's, who's asking. Yeah, and it's not that that's out of character for Rockford, because it definitely felt like a, def a Rockford kind of moment, like, oh, you're going to come at me with all that. Well, here it is. It's that I think that that takes on a nice, interesting light in that it's he keeps trying to shuffle it off. He keeps trying to like uh, this guy who's like an overbearing authority figure is is now doing that to me again. Right. Yeah. Everybody that shows up, he's like, no, no, no this is all it is. You take it. I don't want anything to do with it. Good stuff. So my thought about the title. Oh, yes. We learned about 556. Mm -hmm. uh, right. That's the um, ammunition dimension. So I think where we end with the two into 556 won't go. I think the two is Rockford and Shayna. Their mm -hmm. relationship, even though she ends up feeling fond of him or whatever, oh. it, they're not destined to be. Yeah. In some episodes, we get the feeling that this led to some kind of relationship. This led to, you know, a fling or they dated a little bit afterwards or whatever. Um, sometimes they end with a kiss. Uh, in this case, we kind of end with this kind of downbeat story and still about her dad. She doesn't really have closure, I think. And the two of them aren't going to fit into this odd-shaped hole, right? The 556 is an odd number. That's my maybe reading too much into it read of what the, what the title is referring to. I love that read. And it just now occurred to me to Google... <laughs> Like, is that a reference to something else? <laughs> I mean, if you if you have another idea, uh, I, I don't. I, I don't know if that's the best interpretation, but that's my read. I think, like like with every Rockford Files episode, there <laughs> are more things to enjoy as you break it down. Having the foreknowledge of the the reveal, I guess, of the plan makes mm -hmm. the the first um, encounter with the provost marshal a little more fun. Yeah. There are some great turns of phrase. There's some great uh, one-liners. But overall, um, I think this episode didn't really do it for me as much as, as most of the other ones we've talked about so far. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, there's It's worth watching for the highlights. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if, you, if you're like, I, I only have enough room for a dozen Rockford episodes between now and when I die. Then yeah, this might not be in the top the top 12. That won't be on your list. Yeah. But yeah, I would not tell anyone to skip it uh, if they do plan to just watch all the Rockford they can consume, which you should do. <laughs> there, there are great Rockford moments throughout it. I guess what I would say is become a Rockford fan and then watch this. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't watch this as a first one for sure yeah. or to introduce someone to the series. I guess for me what it comes down to is that there were two potential interesting episodes that each got about two-thirds of the content yeah. it needed. The story of, of a budding relationship between Rockford and a client where she has some kind of hang-ups and he has his own hangups and they need to resolve those in some manner is one story or they do or they end up resolving them in one manner is one story mm -hmm. and i think that's done better in other episodes and then this kind of smuggling heist playing on rockford's past with the military is a pretty good story that could have used more support to be an entire con artist episode yeah uh the smuggling was the reason for the plot to move along but the actual content of the story was i think a little more focused on the rockford 
Shanna relationship, that relationship wasn't pointed enough for me yeah. to really buy into it. Yeah, I, I think that might be why uh, the half-flirting stuff doesn't pan out either. Because Yeah. Okay, so she's there to drag Rockford into the mystery, which that's fine. But she's also there to present these rose-colored glasses view of the military for Rockford to bounce off of. Right, yeah, yeah. And that's it. Like, I think that that's the extent of what's going on there. The other episode I would compare this dynamic to is is actually Tall Woman in Red Wagon. Yeah. Where, uh, I forget her name, but the female protagonist client has a similar role where she's the one who drags Rockford in and she's a, a, a journalist and, and she bounces off of Rockford. They have some confrontational kind of stuff, but she warms up to him in the end in a similar arc. But she also has something she's keeping from Rockford yeah. that gets revealed to him later that brings them closer together once that revelation is made. And I think yeah. that's kind of what I'm missing from the dynamic in this one, uh, that next level of, of Shayna's agenda. That's what makes so many of the dynamics in this show compelling is the, is the agendas. And while she has a motive, like she has a motivation as a character, she doesn't really have an agenda. Yeah. She has propelling force, but she doesn't really have anywhere to go. Ultimately, my criticism of this episode would be that it's, it's got plenty of fun bits. It's slightly underbaked really is really what it, you know, unlike some of the other ones, once you dig in, you start seeing more flaws. Yeah. Instead of less, I guess, instead of how they connect and, and whatnot. So if we were sounding a little unnecessarily harsh i think it's just we have such a high standard for satisfaction that when we're even minimally <laughs> underserved uh i think it's it's worth pointing out is yeah. all but yeah definitely definitely a fine one just to watch it's fun it just maybe doesn't stand up as well to scrutiny as some of our other favorite episodes that said of course we still have more to say about it yes uh so we'll be back after our break, with uh, some more thoughts on general applicability of the stuff that we did like from... C Colonel. Lieutenant Colonel <laughs> applicability. <laughs> uh, we'll come back with more dad jokes <laughs> in our second half. Excellent. While we have you here, there's three ways you can support us. First, rate and review on iTunes or whatever service you use for podcasts. Second, you can support us directly for as little as $1 an episode at patreon.com slash 200 a day. If you want to help us shape the direction of 200 a day, the Patreon is the best place to go. And finally, both of us have other projects going on pretty much all the time. Epi, what are you excited about right now? I'm excited about swords and sorcery, the type of swords and sorcery you find at worldswithoutmaster.com. And my new project, codename Lincoln Green, Robin Hood role-playing game. You can find all you need to know about that at digathousandholes.com. I'm excited about your stuff as well. Oh, that's so nice. As always, you can check out my catalog of fiction and role-playing games at ndpdesign.com, including the worldwide wrestling role-playing game. If you want to see my newest stuff, check out the playtest page. That's where I have free downloads of all my fun new projects. Thanks yet again for listening. As always, we deeply appreciate your support. And with that, back to the show. Welcome back to 200 a day. Uh, we just uh, went over the episode two into 556 won't go. And uh, we're now going to talk a little bit about some of the sort of narrative lessons that we've picked up that you could use as you create your own fiction, whether it's at the table or in a book or a movie or in some sort of folk song. <laughs> there, there are many ways. There's a lot of Rockford Files uh, things you can use for folk songs. I agree. Murder ballads, perhaps. Oh, nice. 
What uh, what stood out to you, Epi? I think I I was a little critical of the episode at when we wrapped it up, but um, there's definitely some good stuff here. So yeah. what what's the first thing that you wanted to talk about? There's always something to learn, whether something is is a cautionary tale or or. But actually, I think there's some things that this episode did quite well. The first one that I want to get at is I wish I had a name for this, and I'm sure there's a name for this out there. So you have Jim, and he's at the Provost Marshal, Colonel Hopkins, and uh, Colonel Hopkins is going over Jim's military history, and Mm, uh the bouncing back and forth of his ranks as you hear about the various deeds that he's done, right? Yeah, he says he should have put a zipper on his sergeant stripes because they came on and off so often. (laughs) Yeah. Such a great line. This reminded me of a moment in a Fofford and Grey Mouser story. As often, I will take a Rockford Files episode and just jam it into something sword and sorcery. But there's a uh, Fofford and Grey Mouser story uh, called The Adept's Gambit. It's a little bit of a weird one. But the part about it that I that this stood out to is that there's this moment in that story where in the course of a paragraph, an entire adventure is told. I don't have the story in front of me. I'm, I can't read it out. Nonetheless, it basically says, like, they just came back from the incident with the blah, 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 where blah, 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 and blah, 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 and just laid it all out. And it was this amazing little chunk of background fiction. The same thing that happened here with Rockford, I wanted to watch the Rockford Files prequel, where he's in the Korean War up to no good, but... Tucked within this episode is an entire epic saga of his mm. military career. Right. And it's done so well because it's done through this conceit of a litany of things that he had done. Yeah, that's um, that's a good technique for, for, for a couple things. One is filling out backstory. Mm-hmm. Here are all the things that I've done. Or here's the reason I'm famous, right? Or here's the reason, here's the reason why the other characters are impressed by this character or threatened by them or whatever. It also is a way to introduce um, story hooks, things that are yeah. going to follow on from these things that the character did before we've caught up to them as audience. This also reminds me of, you're familiar with the, I forget what it's called, but in Hero Quest or Hero Wars, right, where you make a character by writing like a paragraph and then underlining keywords. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, a game that's gone through many editions and versions and whatnot, and I kind of lost lost track of where it's at right now with contemporary stuff. But uh, when I was introduced to it, we were playing the Hero Wars version, which is a little older. There are many different ways to create a character from traditional kind of here's all your points and spend them on stuff and whatever to this narrative version where it's write a 50-word story about your character, yeah. underline the keywords, and those are your abilities your skills and abilities and you turn those into your character sheet and that was super fun yeah it's it's kind of like a a testament to the narrative power of a bulleted list right Mm -hmm. the book life of pi which i have Mm -hmm. a conflicted relationship with but i think the greatest moment in that entire book is if you if you aren't familiar ostensibly it's about a young kid who is trapped on a lifeboat with a tiger and uh one of the, the greatest moments in that book is just the list of survival gear that's on that lifeboat. It's it's literally a list that comes with the lifeboat that says what you have on it. And 
you could sit and just read that page over and over and just pour over it and just a whole adventure in this case more of a robinson crusoe kind of adventure you know Mm -hmm. plays out in your head where you're like how would i survive with only this it's a really neat technique that can be done for various reasons and i think that sometimes we shy away from uh just listing things because you feel like you have to fill in i think we feel sometimes we need to fill in like little plot things in between where in this case the only thing we fill in in between is the banter uh between hopkins and and rockford and that's great it just lets us take all that in and kind of marvel at every little thing trading the food rations for the enemy tank you know (laughs) they're well chosen examples because they're Mm -hmm. ones that are uh, i don't remember all of them now but there's trading the rations for a tank which uh rockford clarifies is that he was asked to to scrounge a tank (laughs) yeah but hopkins comes back with yes but he probably expected you to scrounge one from your own side right yeah uh, so there's that, there's like setting up pool halls, um, and there's like st- essentially stealing or taking an officer's car from in front of a fancy hotel and going joy, joy riding or something like that. There are these audacious things, but they're all audacious in different ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. and they all require, require some level of competence, right? So they're also boosting these character traits that we know of Rockford's, just putting them in a different context. Mm-hmm. It's a neat technique and one that I enjoy. It dovetails with what we've talked about in previous in some of our previous episodes about uh, creating world through implication and yeah. um, taking what the characters care about to illustrate the world. Like in this case, it's not really illustrating the world. It's more illustrating the iceberg of Rockford, right? Like we yeah. only see the tip over the water, but he has this whole past that we get in dribs and drabs through different um, episodes. And this one is illuminating a little more of, of that. So do you have you have something here? Yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing I found potentially useful is this device of showing us the bad guys at the very beginning yes. and then letting Rockford discover who they are more more naturally uh, through the progression of the episode. We've talked before about how different episodes use audience and on-screen character knowledge yeah. to create tension in different ways. Um, and this is a good example of giving the audience knowledge that rockford doesn't have and then as we're watching we're waiting for rockford to discover the thing that we already know right and that's a different kind of tension than watching through rockford's eyes as we discover the new things about this situation the dramatic irony where the audience knows stuff that the main character Mm -hmm. doesn't and i have di for dramatic irony like posted against uh the notes about when shana first comes in and when we when harvey shows up at the door right yeah and this in a kind of a subtle way i think but but in a a stealable way in a way that i think is very easy to import into into a different story this episode treats each of these villains a little differently so (laughs) that rockford has a different kind of interaction with each of them so even though as the audience we know that all three of these men are the bad guys when rockford meets sergeant slate meets harvey it's a different part of the story uh, than when he meets Billy Webster, the the fake sheriff, and then he doesn't really actually end up interacting with uh, with Mister Davis. Um, uh, he's more of the like shadowy architect of the scheme, I yeah. guess, right? But rather than have them all be violent goons or have them all be people that Shayna already knows, so therefore Rockford needs to discover that they're actually against her. By treating those two as different kind of cases, different kinds of villains, but they're still united in the scheme. 
it makes it fun to watch Rockford discover each of them and react to each of them in a different way. And the, there's even a little bit of it when, when Dennis shows up. Because Dennis oh, yeah. is in this episode for just this tiny little bit. And he comes at the door and Rockford's like, hey, Dennis. As if that was good news. And we have the audience. We know if, if something really suspicious has just happened and Dennis has just showed up at his door. <laughs> we don't even know that they contacted Dennis. We just know that that's bad news. And uh, that's great stuff. Yep. Dramatic irony is one of those things where uh, I feel like we're really afraid of it. <laughs> like, spoilers. People are want to avoid spoilers. And there's plenty of reasons to do that. But the experience that we have, you and I, as we do this podcast, where we've watched an episode and then we go and we talk about the episode again, we often come to a greater appreciation. Mm-hmm. Of these episodes because of what we know and then seeing how the the sort of craft of how all that's put together or in in the case of this episode when we see when we, we talk about Hop, Hopkins first talking to, to Rockford and then realizing now that we know the whole story why Hopkins is suspicious of Rockford. And right. it's not just that he has a sp- suspicious history. It's that Rockford's suspicious history would fit perfectly with this criminal enterprise the strength of the of the series is that in most of the episodes having seen it before doesn't make it less fun to see again and a lot of the time it allows you to appreciate certain things that were flagged or telegraphed or character decisions that were made because the second time you see it you already know why they were made and so it makes more sense i think it is a difficult thing may not difficult it's the wrong word but i think it is a a skill to learn for uh, tabletop games, yeah. how to apply this idea, right? Because you don't necessarily want to start a session, right, by saying, okay, here's the bad guys and here's what they're up to. Right. Now let's play a game where you find out there's bad guys and discover what they're up to. That's not tension necessarily or, or irony. That's just forecasting. There are certainly games that you would not want that to happen mm-hmm. it depends on i mean obviously it depends on what you want out of the game or what all everyone wants out of the game but there are plenty of games where you know the the premise of yeah when we play this game we're going to get to this end point yeah but i guess i'm thinking about a little more general idea of uh how do you present a solution to something that would otherwise be a mystery and then have the process of discovering that solution still be tension Right, right. Okay, so if you've got a game that's primarily investigative where the players themselves aren't supposed to know the answer right off the bat, so they mm-hmm. have to uncover the clues and whatnot, uh, there's a thing that happens at the end of those games, I, I feel fairly comfortably saying universally happens at the end of those games, uh, where... The GM says, okay, so now this is what really happened. And then reveals that Mm -hmm. to the players. And then the players go through that whole thing that we just did where they're like, oh, so that's why, oh, there's fun to be had there. It depends on how much fun you had beforehand. From my personal experience that sometimes that fun to be had there, I've slogged through so much to get to that point <laughs> that I'm not <laughs> in the mood to have that fun. You're you're not ready to relive what you just did? You're not getting a value add out of it? Yeah, but there's definitely times where that is a thing, where, where you're like, oh my god, ah, that's why, you know, we were thwarted every turn. It's because this guy was the, he was with us the whole time. Yeah, you want that reveal to be one of... Oh, that makes total sense. That's so cool, right? Not, yeah. oh, that's what we were supposed to have figured out. 
we're dumb. Yeah, and I and I think this episode has a little bit of a cautionary illustration there, where mm-hmm. the concerns, and this this applies even beyond uh, just tabletop role playing. This this also as you're writing stories, you, there's so much you're juggling when you're doing a narrative. You you want to inform your audience, uh, you want to inform them in an entertaining way, uh, and you want to inform them just enough so that the reveal seems. You know, the, I guess the the phrase for it is surprising but inevitable, or you know, whatever mm-hmm. however you want to put that. Yeah. And I think a lot of times an easy mistake to make is to fall on the side of underinforming your audience. And we had a little bit of that going on in this episode mm-hmm. where we talk about when uh, Rockford is at Quentin's door, <laughs> or no, no. It's, well, there's that. I mean, that's that's one kind of it. We need to wrap up in half an hour. Um... Okay, so you guys are at, uh, you've tracked down this guy, and he's going to tell you this thing. <laughs> right. Who cares about how we got here? Uh, definitely, but uh, the thing I was thinking of was Terry uh, at the funeral home, where that's the moment where Rockford makes these sorts of guesses about where the plot's going. If, if we sat down and we drew out the, like, sort of strands of knowledge that the audience knew, the strands of knowledge that Rockford knew, and maybe some other characters that we care about, and we saw where they got tangled up, there are these moments where it's like at the end where Rockford kind of just hands it all over to us. Yeah. So th- th- where we know stuff and Rockford doesn't, it's fun. Mm-hmm. And where we discover it as Rockford is discovering it, it's fun. And oftentimes in mysteries like this, it can also be fun to have your you know super genius detective <laughs> reveal something. Mm-hmm. But I think most of the time... It's more fun to know stuff that the character doesn't or to have it revealed to you as it's revealed to the character. Yeah, in this case, the the leap is one that doesn't seem supported by what we know about the story so far, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's what stands out is sometimes when Rockford makes these jumps, these, like, analytical jumps or these deductive reasonings, mm-hmm. he has another character he's talking to, so... That he's transmitting the logic with the dialogue. And he's m- making a guess... Yeah, or he's telegraphing about how it's a guess. Even yeah. even something as simple as saying, like, now I'm going to go ahead and guess that you were having an affair yeah. with him. Even something like that, which he does a fair amount. And it's kind of startling that, that missing just that half a sentence makes it stand yeah. out as this, like, where did that come from moment right. <laughs> in the context of uh, how these shows are usually written. So I think that this episode was actually kind of a nice melange of well-done dramatic irony mm-hmm. um right down to like i said before the preview montage having sheena warming to rockford and then when she first shows up she's got a gun on him. yeah which you could have done it the other way right the preview montage has her bussing in with a yeah. gun but then having that as the first scene would not have been interesting right like, yeah it would have to be a reversed kind of reveal yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I think maybe one technique to think about for bringing dramatic irony into your game specifically would be something like this episode is a good has a good example of is that whole first scene where it's like, here's a scene that's happening with right. none of your characters present. You know, here's these guys are chasing this guy. They threaten him. We know that these guys are the scumbags. All right, let's let's start, you know, and then you you play your answering machine message and this is the message. Let's go. Yeah. In this case, it's not revealing the whole scheme. It's not telling us what their agenda is, but it is setting it up so that when we meet the characters again later, we're already predisposed to act in a certain way towards them. Yeah, we're wary of them, including having our character maybe trust them when they shouldn't because we're playing a character that needs to 
discover that they shouldn't trust them or, or whatever. Yeah, so I want to talk about the guns, right? Okay. So throughout this episode, we get the moral quandary of Rockford's life. He leads a violent life, but he, he doesn't want to, um, but it's what he does. His arm is not being twisted too badly, uh, so he obviously gets something out of this, but he, he'll moralize about guns quite a bit, despite having been in the military and himself illegally owning a gun. Or even because he was in the military, right? Right. You kind of yeah. get that that feeling as well. Exactly. So one of the the bits that I really enjoyed in this episode is the regalia. There's the scene where he's with Shayna at her dad's house and they're looking at the the medals and the um she talked about how she used to play with them and he has I, I I can't remember the lines now, but he has some good lines about like how they're not as fancy as you think they are. Mm-hmm. You don't know what what he yeah. did to get those, like that kind of stuff. And I think one of the neat ways that this episode subtly reinforces all this is that Shayna shows up with uh, her dad's gun, which is this chrome plated piece of art, right, <laughs> that she doesn't know how to use. And this is a, a great metaphor for her experience of her father's military career, right? Mm-hmm. And then later on, we get to see Rockford's gun, which is this tiny little tool that he hides away in the back, in the trunk of his car where he keeps his jack. You know, it's mm. it's it's a last resort thing that he's a little ashamed of and doesn't want out. And I think that's great. I think that's this, this neat way that this episode subtly reinforced this theme of the two having different experiences uh, with the same military history. Mm-hmm. There's ways to do that over the top, obviously. I, and, and that's a thing that I, I love doing when I write my sword and sorcery. I love describing opulence and I love describing, <laughs> you know, our heroes in uh, abject poverty and whatnot. I think you've made a nice definitional split there, maybe. So maybe surface or 101 level of that idea is that each character has a weapon that reflects their character, right? Sure. That's pretty straightforward, effective, well-trodden ground. But in the context of this episode, it's not that each character's gun represents their character. It's that each character's gun has a resonance with their experience with the military, right? And that's a different thing. That's a more complicated metaphor. Down to Billy Webster not being able to use the military rifle. Right. Like, he struggles with it, and he can't use it. He drops it and goes for his pistol, because he's a a cowboy, right? And then Rockford is a better one, and is able to use his pistol that he was borrowing from the military to bring down this guy who was perverting the military, right? He wasn't even a cop. He was being hired as part of the scam to pull one over on the army uh and it's not rockford's gun that he uses it's an mp's gun that rockford mm-hmm. borrowed so maybe we're reading too much into it but like when, oh, no. when when all these things hang together in that way i think it indicates that someone thought about this uh yeah maybe not literally like everyone's gun has to represent their meaning with the military but more like what's the thematic resonance of each of these each of these scenes uh you know what happens when she pulls the chrome plate, plated gun that doesn't have any bullets, right? Right. Et cetera, et cetera. Just in general, a thing to do is when you're working on something like that and you're like, like you said, you know, we can we can make the weapon represent something intrinsic to the character. But I think the more interesting thing to do is to make something represent of a relationship between mm-hmm. that character and something else. In yeah. this case, the military or military history uh, or 
you, you don't always have to use weapons. It's, it just happens to be what's happening here. Going back to like cars, right? It could be a, a vehicle or yeah. beast of burden or something like that or gifts that are given between characters. Um, you know, I think that the kinds of stories that we like are, and one reason why we're doing this whole podcast, it's the nature of the relationships of the characters. That's what really yeah. keeps us keeps us engaged and keeps us motivated to to see more. So if your metaphors and your imagery are reflecting those relationships, that's when they become very powerful. Yeah. More so than the simple symbolism that they might have. Yeah. Well said. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I have much more to add to that stuff. That all seems yeah. seems like the the high points from this episode for me. Do you have anything else? No, I think we've uh, we've earned our two hundred for the day. I agree with you. <laughs> but that won't stop us from coming back next time yeah. to talk about another episode of the Rockford Files. <laughs>